People in the ancient Near Eastern cultures pursued honour and avoided shame at all costs. Honour was proof of your merit and shame proof of your worthlessness. The resurrection of Jesus led to a reevaluation of humility as a virtue. For the resurrection meant that crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility. The noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. The first datable reference to this innovation in moral thinking comes from a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi around about 60 AD. And here's what Paul writes uh, in the English Standard Version translation. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? And then he quotes... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul asks Christians to exhibit unity by being of the same mind as Christ. To have the mind of Christ means to embrace, to inhabit a way of life within a set of divine and human relationships, a way of life characterised by faith and hope and love. And through the incarnation, Christ served his heavenly Father and his fellow man with a humility born of love, rather than with selfish ambition. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 
To hammer home his point, Paul quotes what many scholars believe to be a pre-existing Christian hymn, one that reworks themes from the prophet Isaiah to present the gospel in terms of humiliation and exaltation. Now, this hymn certainly shows that Christians, by the middle of the first century, acknowledged Jesus was divine as well as human, calling him Lord to the glory of God the Father. Consequently, some theologians have attempted to use this hymn to understand the the metaphysics of the incarnation. But I think this is misguided. It takes a poem from the middle of the first century whose message is primarily ethical and treats it as if it were a piece of systematic theology dealing with metaphysical issues in the manner of the 4th century Nicene Creed. Hence the statement that Christ emptied himself has given rise to the theory known as kenosis or self-emptying, according to which Christ emptied himself of the omniscience, the omnipresence and the, the omnipotence of God. This results in a picture of God the Son becoming human by renouncing divinity. It's better to see God the Son becoming incarnate by making a human nature for himself in addition to his divine nature, taking upon himself the form of the servant and thus being born in the likeness of men. As the philosopher Peter Kreeft observes, the idea that Jesus is only one person and is two persons would be a logical contradiction. And the idea that Jesus has only one nature and has two natures would be a logical contradiction. But the idea that Jesus is only one person who has two natures, divine and human, is not a logical contradiction. To say that Christ emptied himself, I think, means, as Isaiah 53.12 says, that Christ poured out his life unto death. Indeed, his whole life was a living sacrifice, in the words of Romans 12.1. A sacrifice to the point of death, even death on a cross. For as Jesus says in Mark's Gospel, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Within the context of the Philippians hymn, the notable thing about Christ's death is not how physically painful it was, but how publicly shaming it was. What about the phrase about Christ being en morphe theos, literally in form God? The NIV's in very nature God isn't a helpful translation here, which is why I didn't read the passage in the NIV. 
The majority of instances when the word morphe and its cognates occur means simply outward appearance. Jesus changed his, his form or appearance at the transfiguration uh, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. But this doesn't mean he underwent some kind of metaphysical change. The transfiguration was about revealing who Jesus really was, not temporarily making him into someone he wasn't. Again, many Greek texts use this word morphe uh, in a manner that directly contradicts the inward reality of the object in view. So the writer Plutarch compares uneducated rulers to, quote, colossal statues which have a heroic and godlike form on the outside, but inside are full of clay and stone and lead. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul writes of holding to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. In each case, it's the outward appearance of things that is in view. So to describe Jesus as being in outward appearance God is to present a metaphorical picture of the pre-existent Christ clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor, garments by which his divine nature may be known. Christ deserves this public status, but did not count equality with God. That is, didn't count being perceived as Esau is the word, being like or the same or similar of value to God. Didn't count that as a thing to be grasped at. Instead, Christ took up the form of a servant. This imagery fits the Philippians' culture, a culture of marked class distinctions supported by pagan religious myths, a culture where clothing was a public sign of your social status. The Bible itself often plays on associations between clothing and glory and appearance. Consider how Jesus divests himself of his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist to take up the servant's role of washing feet in John 13. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them afterwards. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a, a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Humility is the noble choice to redirect your power in the service of others. Love willingly sacrifices for the beloved. In the incarnation, God the Son adopted the form of a servant 
to display the sacrificial love of God. Allowing humans to ignore the divine status he deserved and to humiliate him to the utmost with a shaming death on the cross. But by miraculously lifting up one who would otherwise have been considered the lowest of the low, God exalted him on high, transfiguring Jesus' shame and redefining the sort of life to which we aspire. As the historian John Dixon writes, humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm of the ancient world. The good life isn't the life of publicly recognized honor, extolled by the ancients and by today's pop culture alike. Rather, it's the life of humble, servant-hearted love that was modeled by Jesus. If we secure ourselves in the eternal love of our servant king, then we are empowered to emulate him by being of the same mind. Amen.